It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back today. Super, super excited to sit down with another Ben. Another well-known Ben in the community. Ben Falk of cleaningtheglass.com. He is formerly with the Portland Trailblazers and Philadelphia 76ers. Worked in the league for a number of years, as we'll talk about briefly in our conversation. But sat down with Ben to talk about analytics and basketball, measuring defense. We get into looking at film a lot and the connection between film and defense and data. And uh, it just turned into a very interesting conversation. So without further ado, let's jump in. Ben and Ben, thank you uh, so much. This is something I've wanted to do for a very long time since I discovered you and your work in cleaning the glass. So uh, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. I'm a fan of your work as well and just excited to have a great basketball conversation. So so maybe that's a good place to start. Just maybe like a little background on how cleaning the glass came to be. You know, you were working in the NBA for years and I feel like once you started it, it, it sort of took hold and almost became like a phenomenon and it's just now it's so widely used and known by so many people in the industry so tell me like just a little bit about how that came to be <laughs> well um some of it's probably luck um but uh you know right place right time any of that but i mean for me so um you know i worked in the nba like you said for uh eight years and i it was probably the right amount of time to learn a lot and not too long to forget what it was like to be on the outside, um, to be, you know, I, I was pretty young before I got uh, a job in the league. And so to kind of be a young fan and um, want to know what it's like on the inside and, and um, you know, also be frustrated with the availability of certain resources that were out there. Now, in the interim, there have been, a, you know, I mean, just with social media and just the web in general, there have been more and more resources available um, but they still weren't exactly what I would have wanted as someone from the outside. And, and when I left the Sixers, um, you know, I gave some thought as to what I wanted to do and where I wanted to go from here. And, and one of the things that I've always been passionate about is kind of uh, trying to share knowledge. And I realized in the NBA, it's almost the opposite. Not only can you not share knowledge with the public, you can't even really share it with a lot of your peers around the league. And so this was a, just a great opportunity to kind of, uh, you know, switch gears and take what I had learned and what I wish, uh, you know, someone had shared when I was kind of coming up and trying to get into the business um, and be able to do that. And so, you know, share things through writing, share things through, um, you know, building a website with the stats that I would want to be able to see uh, consumable for the public. Um, and so that's kind of what I've tried to do. Uh, you know, from that point, that's almost been, you know, a few years ago now. It's probably like I, I left the Sixers in 2016. So, um, you know, 
it's almost like basically three years now that I've been thinking about this and, and working on it. So does, uh, to pick up a little bit on something you were alluding to there, does, does being in the league for a long time, would you, to borrow maybe Shawshank Redemption parlance, do you become institutionalized after a while to the, to the sort of norms and, um, you know, sort of being shaded from some of these public things? And you, you alluded to these arms races where it's, an, it's a knowledge war, but nothing is shared and everything goes underground. Is, does that kind of happen if you've been in the weeds for a long time? I mean, I think for sure, you just, you adopt a mindset where obviously it's a very competitive industry and you adopt a mindset where everything is about looking for competitive edges. And that can be very fun. And I think, you know, for the right person, it's something that you want to do for your whole career. For me, I kind of saw, I'm a very competitive person as well. um, But, you know, I kind of got some of that out (laughs) through my time there. And then uh, I started to see some of the downsides of just always kind of looking for those competitive edges and therefore having to be guarded in certain ways. Um, you know, one of the things that I thought was interesting is I'd go to the Sloan conference every year and you'd meet up with your peers from around the league. And part of the reason why I enjoyed it so much is because here were a bunch of people who you'd be like, if we all lived in the same city, we'd be friends. We all have the same interests. We all have similar mindsets. Um, you know, that's why we're doing this for a, a career. And yet by necessity, we have to be spread out and we don't get to talk that much and we don't, we can't share things. Uh, you know, we can't collaborate, we can't work together and, and um, build something great. Uh, there's also the aspect of the fact that what you do, your work, you don't own your work, your work is owned by the team. And so mm-hmm. if you do want to change teams, you kind of have to start over or adjust in some way. And so you're essentially building these like silos that you don't end up having control over. Um, And so it just, it becomes isolating in that way. Uh, Like I said, I mean, that's part of the point of competition. So that's the fun of it. And that's what a lot of what we all like, but from just a work standpoint, it can be a little bit more difficult. Um, You don't get to do some of that. If, if you like to share, if you like to collaborate, if you like to do those things, uh, it can be a little more difficult. Okay, so you've been behind the scenes in, in working for teams where you get access to more data than what the public sees. The question I'm thinking is, what's, what, what is not yet on cleaning the glass that you would love to have up there? What sort of either specific data or specific stat would you put up there if you had your druthers? <laughs> I don't know if we have time for, for that. <laughs> um, Uh-oh, that, I've opened yeah. Pandora's box. <laughs> No, I mean, I think, um, it. look, it's no secret. I mean, I'm sure, you know, everyone who follows you is, is pretty well uh, versed in the, the kinds of things that are available to the public and the kinds of things that aren't. And knowing that public data has a rich history, uh, but it's just very limited in terms of the granularity with which it represents uh, the game. So, you know, whether it's, I mean, obviously there's the, the coordinate, tracking data, um, which obviously opens up so much, as well as uh, synergy data. um, And I mean, other kinds of things like that, where these are efforts to essentially track the data, uh, I mean, track what's going on on the court with much more granularity. Um, And so, you know, I I am a big believer in kind of what I call a bottoms up approach um, to analysis, which means that, you know, I think we need to start with the game itself to understand the game at 
a as fundamental a level as we can and then start to figure out how do we analyze those things that we know about the game rather than the reverse which i see a lot i'm sure i do a lot um because it's just it's easier and more natural which is to start with the data that we have available and to perform analyses on that data um so actually you know I, i tweeted about this the other day talking about assists and the way assists are uh tracked by scorekeepers and collected um and you know, I think we have this idea in our mind when we're analyzing assists, when we're analyzing a player's numbers, what an assist is. And then when you actually watch the video alongside the, the you know, let's say the play-by-play um, and see what is actually scored as an assist, you realize that it's, you know, it's a lot more varied than you think. And a lot of it isn't exactly what you think of as an assist. And you become, you realize how much with the stats that we are familiar with and rely on um, how much they miss in terms of capturing the game. That was actually something that sort of gave me confidence in tracking my own metrics, looking at film, which is this. And I've done a lot of work on assists over the years. Even the, the latest video, I think we're up to part four in my stat series is all about, you know, breaking apart the assist and looking at it from different, different actual constructs of playmaking and passing and things like that. But When I started sort of years ago saying, all right, I want to come up with a way to measure X or Y, and then you start measuring it, like what does it mean to create a double team or something like that? You realize it's very fuzzy and very fluid, and yet assist, which has been sort of this cornerstone stat for a very long time, has always been highly interpretable, extremely fuzzy, extremely fluid. It's actually changed over the years what they sort of credit as a standard assist as a super nerdy aside at some point i think in like 1958 or 1959 i've never seen anything official on it but i am convinced they completely changed the scorekeeping on assists because the statistical jump in assist percentage makes no sense (laughs) otherwise there's no real other way to possibly explain it so these things kind of happen now they happen over the years more slowly and i think you're your tweet was about Porzingis, Kristaps Porzingis, um, having a career high five assists. But then when you actually watch the film, it's like, well, maybe three or four of them are what we would think of as assist inflation or scorekeeping inflation. Is that right? Yeah. And I mean, inflation, I think I wouldn't take that strong of, of a, you know, of an approach and say that, you know, it's clearly, um, you know, a, a almost a design by the scorekeepers to add assists. But I think it's important to realize when you look at those assists, where they come from. So it was interesting to see kind of the response on Twitter where half the people were like, that's crazy. I can't believe he got assists for those. And half the people were like, that's a standard assist in the NBA. What are you talking about? Um, My point wasn't even to point out anything about Porzingis or that game, but just to say that oftentimes we just take those numbers at face value and have this idea in our heads of what they mean and don't actually go to the film and look at what they're specifically measuring. Um, And then that throws you off in terms of all kinds of analysis. And so, yeah, I mean, that that's kind of where I I talk about that bottoms up approach is, you know, you really like the projects you're alluding to, you really want to start with watching the game, asking questions about the game itself and then figuring out how to measure it. Um, you know, your comment about assist percentage in, um, you know, historical assist percentage being all over the place reminded me of, um, I think it's in 
the book Loose Balls about the ABA. Terry Pluto. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, there's a section that I loved, which was about, I'm forgetting the name of the person, but there's someone who just was kind of plucked out of nowhere, as often happened in the ABA, uh, and became the head of stats um, for the ABA. And he was like, you know, I, I now had free reign to sit down and be like, well, what would I do? What are the kinds of things I would actually track if right. now that I have the opportunity to re- to add on or you know reinvent the box score? Um, and so I believe that's where like blocks and steals came from. And, ter- and um, turnovers. The ABA was also ahead. And in, turnovers. Yep. They, yeah. And so he just came up with that. And, and these are these things we think of as, um, you know, cornerstone statistics. Um, but we don't realize they came from someone just sitting and say, thinking, you know, how would I track this? You know, what other information do I want? Um, we're lucky to be in an era now where we are doing more of that. We are thinking much more about what other stats should be fundamental stats or how else should we uh, try to track and collect data that, to better analyze what's going on in the game. But I think we still are very married to this history of how we've done it historically rather than starting at, okay, let's look at the game and figure out how should we actually try to analyze it. So that's a great segue into the the sort of original thought I had for reaching out to you for this conversation, which was about measuring defense. It's so historically been just steals and blocks and maybe defensive rebounds and personal fouls. And um, the great the great writer Jackson Frank actually – asked me this question a while ago and I've been waiting to pose it to you which is how should we weigh on ball versus off ball defense when we evaluate defense and are there paths to creating better metrics to quantify these things and of course we could just start with you know quantifying defense in general beyond that sort of historical crutch of blocks and assists that's a big topic but where do you think is a is a good starting place to kind of move forward, both in terms of bottom up, looking at the, like how we actually view what's happening on the court, but just any kind of measuring devices or analytics that we can start to develop to give us better insight into that side of the ball. I think it's a uh, fantastic question. And the comparison of on ball and off ball is um, something I've been thinking about for a while. I think that, in my mind at least, this is, I think it's a more contrarian view. I think off-ball matters much more than most people give it credit for. Um, and it's one of the kind of the big quibbles that I have with um, a lot of the defensive analysis that you see publicly, but it's also even something that I think um, scouts have issues with, um, at least in my view, um, which is I think it's much easier to evaluate when you're scouting someone evaluate someone's on ball defense and you miss all of the other subtleties but those subtleties really add up um and you know this was something i uh started realizing when i got my start um where i was working for dean oliver um he was with the nuggets at the time and i just was volunteering for him um just kind of doing different projects and one of the projects that i did was charting uh was collecting defensive data um, watching a ton of film. And as I'm watching the film and collecting this data in a way and kind of following a structure that he had laid out, um, you know, I start to notice patterns and think about things. And then I had some of that data that I could sift through. And one of the things you learned is that most of the, the players with the largest impact on the court were often 
um, defensive big men who were helping a lot at the rim. Um, and that's obviously, you know, not on ball defense. Um, you start to realize even more as you look at, especially as the game has evolved into these uh, multiplayer actions, right? I mean, most, um, there's much less one-on-one these days. And that means there isn't this kind of mano a mano matchup anymore. Um, you know, even when you have isolations, there's obviously a team effort that needs to go into it. Um, but especially when you have multiplayer actions, you can't isolate that down to just the on-ball defender. You need to know how the screener defender is doing, and you need to know what off-ball defenders are doing, whether they're rotating and getting to the right spots and all of that. Um, so uh, I think, in my mind, I think off-ball defense is much harder to see and evaluate. It's also harder to... Um, it's therefore obviously a lot harder to analyze statistically, but I think it matters much more than on-ball defense uh, and much more than anyone really gives it credit for. So a lot a lot that I want to unpack there, but before I do that, I am very happy to announce that this episode is sponsored by The Athletic. If you go to theathletic.com slash thinkingbasketballpod, Right now, you can get a free month trial and 50% off the subscription price. If you're not familiar with The Athletic, basically all the cool kids are there now, like John Hollinger, Ethan Strauss, David Aldridge, and friends of the Thinking Basketball family like Seth Partnow, former director of research for the Bucks. Those guys create awesome content. Uh, it's all hardcore. Seth actually has a number of pieces that I've referenced in the stat series that he's authored over at The Athletic. And, of course, they have podcasts, too. Recent guest Dave Dufour runs at least one pod. We were trying to figure out how many he runs for them. He runs a bunch. Uh, they have awesome local coverage blanketing all 30 teams. For instance, today, Jared, Re- Jared Weiss wrote a great piece on the Celtics' transition defense where he matches up some of the numbers to a film study on how Boston played transition D this year, basically, versus last year. It's just really good stuff. Uh, Ad-free, no pop-ups, none of that. And you can sort of curate who you want to follow in your custom feed on the Athletic app, which I'm a big fan of. That's what I use in the morning when I wake up. Of course, you support this podcast by signing up at theathletic.com slash thinkingbasketballpod. Don't forget the pod. Once again, you'll grab a free month trial and 50% off the subscription price when you go through that channel at theathletic.com slash thinkingbasketballpod. Okay, back to our conversation. First, right out of the gate, I'm interested in your perspective on that being a contrarian view. Do you... Do you when you say that, do you do you are you referring to sort of the lay fan out there? Because around these parts, that's sort of the that's been the standard for a long time. I think is that off ball defense and help defense at the rim and sort of what I just conceptualize as paint defense. The the standard view, I think, in a lot of more analytical circles or historical circles, as you alluded to with rim protectors, is those are the guys that move the needle more. So when you say it's contrarian, is that? Is that, uh, do you still feel like that's sort of um, a pervasive viewpoint around the league? So, I, I mean, I guess, you know, we could be a little more nuanced here and say, I mean, I think it's it's obviously been known for a while that rim protectors are really important. I guess what I mean is um, that every player probably has more impact in off-ball defense than they do on-ball. So when you're evaluating a wing and saying, you know, let's say a two-guard and evaluating their defense, in my mind, you should be looking much more uh, off-ball than you should be on-ball. And that, I don't think, at least in my perception, maybe disagree, but I don't think is necessarily a super common opinion. Yeah, no, I agree with that. That's uh, 
I, I it's trickier with guards, I think, because people have a te- even if you buy the idea that bigs are rim protectors, when you start to get down to smaller players, to your point, there's probably a baked in assumption that their on ball defense matters more than their off ball defense. And, you know, maybe in general, uh, that's true. But I still think the the point that you're making that I really buy into here, especially when I look at guys and I'm evaluating their defense is, okay, your on-ball stuff maybe matters a lot because you are facing point of attacks with the guards you're matching up with. But if you're going to move the needle one way or the other, it's usually all the other stuff around your rotations, how you get through screens off the ball, and sort of whether you have any ability. Like Kyle Lowry is a great example. He's really good off-ball, and he actually has sort of a form of paint defense that is destructive with the fact that he takes a charge per game, which is just a crazy frequency of of charge taking, but he's always putting himself in a position to stop actions, whether the ball is involved or not. And I, I'm still looking for that with guards, to your point. I mean, I think a simple way, this is maybe overly simplistic, but I think uh, it drives the point home. A simple way to think about it is just that, um, you know, there's four other players on the court than your matchup. And chances are that at any given moment on the court, when you're playing defense, that your man doesn't have the ball. Right. And so the things that you're doing in those situations that, you know, it's just, there's enough of a, it's an, it's unbalanced enough um, that, you know, those actions really add up. And so, you know, all the things you're talking about in terms of rotations, um, you know, like, Kyle Lowry helping in the paint and that kind of stuff, but even simpler things, um, you know, is the, you know, are you sinking down if, if the big man goes to help, are you sinking down on his man to take away the easy pass for a dunk right. or get into his legs and keep him off the offensive glass? Um, you know, are you, you know, properly um, shrinking the court a few steps in and, you know, showing your length to dissuade a drive? Um, you know, so that kind of stuff, I think you just are in those situations much more frequently than guarding the ball just by the simple fact that your man is not always going to have the ball. I think that I think John Wooden has a quote around that, you know, you don't have the ball 90% of the time, so that's where you actually create value, show me you can have value. And I think that has some carryover on offense, but certainly on defense. Um, everything you were just talking about there kind of leads me into this category that I've had in my brain for about a decade, which I just called deterrence. Meaning when you're on defense, if you deter actions from ever unfolding, they're really important, but it's also the hardest thing to not only notice with your eye or on film, because you have to you have to be aware of the counterfactual. Like, oh, if you weren't one step pulled in, you know, if you don't sink down, right? If you don't do this little thing that takes away a subtle action, it otherwise would be a high percentage shot. So those are th- those things are really hard to notice. But what I found, and I still don't have a good solution for, maybe you can weigh in on, is my goodness, they're difficult to measure from a bottom-up perspective, maybe without having super, super granular data to work with. Yeah, I know. I, I love that point. It's something um, I've maybe said something similar for a while, which is like you don't see the turnover that the player doesn't force. Right. Um, you know, it's really easy to see when someone gets a steal and you, it's in, incredibly hard, if not impossible, to see the situation where, you know, Robert Covington would have got that steal, but this player didn't. Um, and so, you know, to your point, I think that that is very difficult to measure um, from a bottoms up 
perspective. I think there are things that you can get at. You know, my hope from a bottoms up perspective is to say, let's see if if you took a great defensive coach and you watched the game with them, and then you tried to measure all the things that they're looking at. That's kind of what we want to do, right? That would be almost our ideal, um, you know, situation. Not measure with an opinion, but just you know, what are all the things that they're evaluating in players? And let's try to capture that. And from there, we can use that data to get a sense of what's important um, and, and, and all of that. Um, to your point, though, I mean, I do think there is, um, that's kind of where the types of metrics where you can look at what's happening on the court and see if you can at least get at a rough view of a player's impact. Um, those types of measures are valuable. So the simplest of which is just comparing when the player's on the court to when they're off the court. And that's where you can see the turnovers that the player doesn't force. Um, you know, there's definitely players that consistently across their career um, playing in different situations with different teammates with, for different coaches where their teams just force significantly fewer turnovers when they're in the game than when they're out. And that does allow you to capture what we're talking about, which is the, the things that might have otherwise happened. Yeah, see, I, I think of that as the top-down. I think my next video in the stat series is going to start getting into this i i think of sort of that as the giant you know top-down overlord view where you can look at on off or adjusted plus minus or something to try to capture everything in a bucket that you can't build up from a bottom granular perspective and that's certainly helped me over the years especially with the idea of valuing rim protectors and starting to see where you have more impact i mean i think that entire family of stats has been the one that's been the leader for the last decade, 15 years or so, whatever in, in getting us to a place where it's like, okay, if you have a dominant interior defender, we don't necessarily know why, or if you have a big forward Covington, maybe, um, you know, you have a guy who is really, really popping in these metrics, but when you watch the game film, you don't think of him as an old school Sydney Moncrief or, uh, you know, Randy Brown used to come off the bench for the, for the late 90s Bulls championship teams. He's just a great on-ball defender, but doesn't really move the needle beyond that. Um, thoughts on that? Yeah, so I, I wrote about this a few years ago, um, how, look, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of uh, one-number metrics in general, um, and I, uh, you know, I think you have to be very careful with some of these on-off um, type of comparisons, particularly in small sample sizes. Um, but they do have a power that exactly what it's, which is exactly what you're talking about. And, you know, what I wrote is, I mean, how else could you conceivably compare someone like a Chuck Hayes to someone like a, uh, I don't know, Kevin Martin, right? Um, you know, someone like just trying to use two extreme examples. I mean, someone who's a very skilled offensive player who's very poor on defense to someone who's a very impactful defensive player um, who's, you know, very poor on offense. If you didn't have stats, if you didn't have some measure, I mean, so even with the standard stats that we have, we can say that we might be able to say those two things about them. Um, but how do you know what their overall net impact is? Um, it it's mostly comes down to a matter of opinion within coaching staffs, um, within, you know, for evaluators of, well, is their good defense canceling out their bad offense? Is their you know good offense canceling out their bad defense? Um, but those are very difficult questions to answer if you don't have some um, way to try to get at what is their net impact on the court. Uh, now, 
that has its own problems. Uh, like, you know, I, I'm sure, again, a lot of your followers are aware of those um, in terms of the fact that you don't ever get to directly observe, you know, kind of like a controlled randomized experiment, uh, what teams would look like with and without that player. And you need large samples to really get, um, and I mean, large samples and across, like I was saying, a variety of situations to really have confidence in those numbers. Um, but they can maybe help you answer some of these big picture questions. So th this was particularly fascinating to me. I wrote about this and it, it generated more of a response than I even expected about Nikola Jokic. Um, Jokic, you can, in the on-off numbers, consistently shows up as a positive defender for his team. And uh, there are a lot of people who watch who think he's a terrible defender. And how do you square those two things? And this is where I think you can get a little bit more granular with this, um, with these kind of on-off comparisons, is you can look at the why. And with Jokic, uh, the why seems to be that he is fantastic, has a fantastic impact on the defensive glass. He's great at boxing out. I think he's great at deterring shots around the basket since he mostly just kind of stands around the rim um, very often. Um, and he deters... Uh, because he deters people from getting to the rim and because he doesn't, um, I think, foul on a lot of shooting fouls, um, you know, he ends up, opponents end up getting many fewer offensive rebounds when he's on the court and get to the line much less. He's more um, active, I think, than people give him credit for as well, which speaks to these same kind of concepts, I think, right? Which is like, there are times where his foot speed is a problem or certain teams can expose him in pick and roll, especially if there's a lot of space. But all of the sort of playing into Denver's scheme and rotating when he needs to be. And he's a very thoughtful defender. He's, he understands, you know, that vision he has on offense, he applies to defense. And so he's often in good places and can string together good possessions. I think all of that works in his favor, whereas, you know, a lot of people just see the, the slow foot speed. Yeah, for sure. I, he's, you know, there's no one who would question whether he's a high IQ player or not. And he definitely uses that speed of thought to help counteract um, you know, some of the foot speed that he might be lacking. But there's also times where you, you just see from an effort standpoint, there might be someone, you know, driving at him around the rim and he just doesn't put up a hand, um, you know, any of that kind of stuff. And I, I think that's why there are people who are very skilled talent evaluators who look at him as a poor defender. Um, and I think the way to square that is just to say that, um, I mean, so some of it is exactly what you just said, uh, but some of it is that it's hard to see. I mean, to the conversation we just had, it's hard to see the foul that would have occurred if he wasn't there. It's hard to see the offensive rebound that would have occurred if, you know, let's say you had um, a, a great shot blocker back there who chased every shot, right? <laughs> and so the fact that he's not chasing those shots and he's stealing his man and getting difficult defensive rebounds um, is is might be hard to see otherwise. And then the biggest thing that I think is difficult is how do you put all that together? How do you say, okay, so even if you could see he's keeping guys off the offensive glass, he's not putting people on the line, but he also has these deficiencies in terms of forcing missed shots, how do we balance all of that together to know is he a net positive or net negative on the defensive end? And then uh, and then I think even the, there's a bigger sort of uh, uh, monkey wrench in the whole thing, which is this other big question for me around the, and you alluded to it earlier with the points of emphasis for a coach watching his team, it's like, each team is going to have different points of emphasis and different sort of schematic things that they want players to execute. That's extremely difficult 
to know from the outside sometimes, but it's also even more difficult, I think, to capture with data because, you know, every situation can be different. So I think that's the like the other big one when you get into the discussion we're having here, which is, okay, his coach wants him to do that. And therefore, his coach or his team has an idea that he's executing it at, I don't know, a B plus level or 75% of the time he gets it right. But how does that translate to any other system or any other team and so on and so forth? Yeah, I mean, a great example of this um, is when I was in Portland and uh, this was heading into Terry Stotts and Neil O'Shea's second year there. Um, and in the previous year, that first year, J.J. Hickson was our starting center. And you know, obviously we knew we needed to upgrade that position. And we had also decided over the offseason to change our style of defense um, from a particular style of pick and roll defense um, from being much more aggressive with hard shows to dropping back. And so when we were looking at the potential players that would be available and Robin Lopez came on the market, um, you know, one of the things we looked at was his defensive impact in New Orleans. Um, but when you started to get to it, you realized they were playing a very different style of pick and roll defense. They were asking him to do things very differently than we would ask him to do. And so you had to try to get at, um, you know, you had to just try to adjust for that context and what the coach was asking him to do and say, okay, well, how is, how would he be in a system where all of a sudden he's being asked to do something very different? Um, so for sure, that is, you know, beyond the fact that defense is um, probably more team oriented than offense and everyone is tied together and all these balancing problems we're talking about. Um, there's also the issue, like you said, of how the players used by their coach, what they're being asked to do, and sometimes things that we as an outside viewer just might not know what was the actual scheme, what were the coaches actually wanting to have done. Can we go back for a second? Why? Why? I mean, this is a fascinating thing you sort of landed on. Why did you decide to change the style of pick and roll defense? What precipitated that? I mean, for one, the results weren't great <laughs> the previous year, right? So... Um, you know, that, that's, um, so when you say, when you say the results weren't great, uh, is that looking at those specific actions or were you, you mean just like defensively you wanted an overhaul of the entire, the entire system wasn't working? Uh, I mean, both, right? So our, our bottom line results defensively were not good, which is part of what motivates a change. If, um, you know, if the overall results were fine, then, you wouldn't really be looking maybe quite as hard at whether to change um, or be quite as open to change. Um, and then as you dive in and try to figure out what's going wrong, you can start to get a sense of, okay, these are the things that are problems. You can look at the various measures that we had to um, try to determine you know, where the root of the problem was um, and then figure out, okay, what can we do to improve? Uh, you know, what are the other potential options? What are the best defensive teams in the league doing? Um, you know, any of that to try to figure out how you improve as a team and, um, you know, and, and figure out what the best scheme is in terms of just a base scheme that you'd want to play. So was that, was that pre-sports view then? Pre-second spectrum uh, optical tracking data? That was, I don't remember, I mean, if Sportview existed, which it may have, um, we didn't have it in Portland. So, um, yeah, that's where I was going. At, yeah, it might have been at that time. So what what is sort of, can you give us a little insight into that process to actually go, like, back before you had that, what would you do 
to figure out, okay, we're actually getting gutted on pick and roll relative to other teams. Um, I mean, you know, I guess what I'm what I'm really at getting to or asking about in a sense is how data driven is that decision? Because what if what if it turns out your pick and roll defense is actually, you know, sort of like one of the most decent or strongest things on your defense and it's everything else that's leading to that overall bottom line result. How do you get in there back in the day and figure that out? Um, so you, I mean, synergy existed back then. Um, so you have, I mean, that was a great tool to, um, you know, they are essentially tracking these actions and being able to evaluate, um, you know, at a more granular level. Um, and, uh, you know, you also can start to do some of that work yourself, um, you know, figure out how to collect data on the things that are important, um, you know, to you and, um, and help you answer those questions. And, you know, I think from my perspective, uh, I kind of view it as like a cascade of whys, (laughs) Uh, meaning like you just keep asking why to try to dig one level deeper. And sometimes you run into a wall. So you might say, okay, well, um, we weren't good this year. Why? Right. And then you could look and say, well, our defense was pretty poor. Why? And you start to dig deeper at looking at, you know, you can look at four factors breakdown. You can look at shot distributions. Um, you know, you can look at personnel, you can look at various things to try to determine what actually is going on on the court. Where are the problems? Um, and so that starts to guide you. You also can look at, I mean, I think one of the things that's, um, interesting and maybe isn't done enough is to look at, well, what are the best teams doing? Um, you know, to kind of start from the other end and say, what are the differences between us and the best defensive teams right now? Uh, one of the things I think that has been interesting is, um, I mean, just to kind of bring it back to today is like Milwaukee had a very successful defense last year. Um, and surely some of it was personnel, but you know, as I wrote about a few times, they also pursued a pretty extreme strategy in terms of selling out to protect the rim. Um, and I was very interested to see how many teams would look at that in the offseason and say, you know what, why don't we try to do what they did? Why don't we try to adopt a lot of their rules and philosophy? And to be honest, it's kind of been surprising to see. I mean, I haven't been able to watch all the games yet and get a great sense, but um, just kind of looking at things, I haven't seen many teams necessarily shift that direction or seem to be obviously influenced by that success. Uh, but if I were working for a team, that's certainly something that I would want to highlight and bring to the coaching staff and have a discussion with them about and say, you know, here's a team that was highly successful pursuing this specific strategy. Why is that? Is that something we could do? You know, when, why not? All that kind of stuff. Very interesting. Um, another thing that sort of is jumping out to me as we talk through this is, and, and putting a wonderful uh, reputation on the Ben name. You watch a lot of film. You know, there's this idea that like if you work with numbers or you work with data, that uh, you're divorced from film. And of course, I think that's a false dichotomy. It's sort of a, a mantra around here that they go together. But I think yet another example I'm hearing as we talk through this is how so many things required going back to film study. Where where did that start with you? Was it um, you know, when you were with a team, did they sort of train you up or coach you? Did you work with video coordinators? How, how did you get into looking at so much film to help answer the key questions that you ask? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I love the point. I think, and this goes back to what I was saying before about trying to start bottom up with your analysis. 
and this is something I preach, um, you know, to a lot of people trying to get started is you have to understand the game because that's the domain that we're analyzing. So you have to understand it. And that comes from watching and asking lots of questions. Um, so I, you know, to, to answer your question, I think, um, the real place to point to is, is what I talked about earlier, which is when I first started working for Dean Oliver and, um, you know, whether by luck or by design, the project that I ended up spending the most time on was this kind of defensive charting project where I was watching hundreds of hours of film and charting a bunch of different actions. And that allows you to really see the game at a granular level where you're watching and rewinding and watching and rewinding and really starting to, um, you know, you're marking down what happened, but not in a robotic kind of way. You're sitting there and you're constantly um, asking why, why did that happen? You know, the team gave up a dunk. Why did they give up a dunk? Let's go back and look at the chain of actions here. And um, I think that, you know, that probably informed a lot of my perspective um, to start. I, I mean, look, I, <laughs> everyone would say this or they would change their ways, but I also think that's the right way to approach it, right? So you need to understand, uh, you need to understand the game. You need to be able to really break down why things are happening. And it's, it can't even just be, you can't, it can't just be something that you accept because someone told you. You have to ask the questions yourself or otherwise you won't discover something new. So the kind of first principles way to think about basketball has to start with what's actually happening on the court. And, you know, we have this um, incredible luxury in the area that we analyze that this is on film. I mean, you think about like, if you're trying to evaluate almost any other employee in any other industry, they're not being filmed while they work. So you might see the output, um, but that's about it. And we get to actually, we just get to take this like, you know, hours and hours and hours of film and sit and watch it and be able to like really think deeply about what is driving uh, winning, what is driving success in any area of the game. Um, and I think that that's just, I mean, it's a really powerful tool to take advantage of. And, you know, it's, it's also like, it helps feed kind of a, a curiosity that I think all of us have about the game, which is why we analyze it and talk about it so much. Um, you know, I think you just really kind of have to start from that perspective of watching and thinking and asking questions. And to this day, you know, when I think about analyzing the game, when I think about um, any of this stuff, you have to, you know, I, you go, I go to the film. Um, I, I think the other point there too is, uh, that, I mean, you also have to be very humble and aware of what the data doesn't capture. Um, and so it goes to everything we just talked about that even with coordinate data, there's a lot missing from what is captured. Um, and because of that, that means you have to be able to supplement, um, you know, with what you see on film where your eyes can capture that data. So, you know, I, I think, um, Dean Oliver had a great line years ago where he said, um, you know, a human can watch and analyze a game better than data ever can, but data sees all the games, um, right. you know, and so that's kind of a, it's like the, the season started and there's so many great games and I want to watch all of them. And you feel like you're drinking from a fire hose. You just can't get to it. You don't have the time to watch every second of every game and deeply analyze it. And, you know, if you even try to do that, you realize immediately how valuable numbers can be in summarizing the things that you don't see. But at the same time, you also have to be aware that they are summaries um, and they're going to be missing a lot and often very imperfect summaries. And so to really be able to analyze in the way that you need to, you need to be able to watch. You mean you haven't been staying up every night and through the wee hours of the morning? <laughs> 
watching the the Grizzlies and the Suns? <laughs> it's it's funny because um, I I mean I don't know about other people. When I sit down to break down a game, um, you know I'm I'm watching it on um, you know recorded essentially. It's like it's on film, so I'm skipping dead time timeouts, commercials, all that kind of stuff. But I'm rewinding so much that it yeah. still takes me about two hours to watch a game. Yeah. And so, you know, you look at a night where there's 10 games and it's like, it's just physically no way for one person to watch all of that and sleep. I, I'm a little faster, but I also have learned I don't need to watch all 48 minutes of a game. Right. And I think, you know, that idea that the the data that your brain, going back to what Oliver said, just the idea that your brain, and I talk about this in Thinking Basketball, the book, your brain can't count big things very well. So you're better off, at least I feel like I'm better off looking at film for tendencies and patterns that I can note and capture and describe from this sort of causal point of view and then let the data like, in other words, I don't need to really worry about 118 open catch and shoot threes. I'm going to go to the data at a certain point, but I can understand and look at the film to see a guy's mechanics that doesn't take that long or maybe to see how he gets into his shots Maybe to look for patterns about, you know, where he's where his feet are set, if he's on the other side of the court, if he's popping versus coming into it. Those are the things I'm going to the film for, but I still need the stats. I'm still relying on data to capture things that my my brain's not going to handle very well. Yeah, I mean, I think I often say that, and I actually used this the other day uh, when I was tweeting about um, Porzingis, I, I think that stats are both incredibly powerful and incredibly dangerous for the same reason, which is that they summarize. Um, and so, you know, it's the, um, it's the old line, which I might botch, which is just about like, you can't have um, a map that perfectly reflects reality, or it would just be reality. The value of a map is that it summarizes reality. Um, but by necessity, that means it leaves, th it leaves things out. Um, and so I think, you know, numbers are, uh, are the same thing the key is to be able to understand, you know, what are you actually missing and what, um, and does it matter or not? Um, and so what happens is, you know, you have these numbers that summarize and they allow us to do things like everything we, we've already talked about. Um, you know, when you're talking about kind of the Chuck Hayes versus Kevin Martin problem or, or the Nikola Jokic problem, you couldn't do that without numbers. Um, you, you're able to count, you're able to add up and say, is this a net positive or a net negative? Um, but that also means that you start to rely on them maybe a little bit too much and you start to forget what it is that they're hiding through their simplicity. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I did an entire, uh, episode on this idea called the tyranny of the quantifiable. If you're familiar with that concept that basically after a while, when we measure something, our brain starts to get rid of all the nuance and peripheral inputs that aren't summarized or captured in that measurement. We just view that measurement as the thing. We, we tend to believe in its truth after a while, which I, which I think maybe is a great segue back into all-in-one metrics. Um, you alluded to it earlier. You're not, you don't use them too much. Sort of, how do you feel? I'm someone who uses them. I'm a big fan of them, but I also think they're more like ballparking tools. Um, you know, they can be dangerous if misused and things like that. Tell, tell me your sort of your biggest pro and your biggest con and sort of where you end up not, because it seems like in looking at your work, you don't use them too much. Is that fair? Yeah. I mean, I think to me, the place that 
the the main place that they're really useful is if you you do need for whatever reason to come up with um, kind of a one number measure. So um, the example I always think about is like let's say you're just trying to get a sense of um, the value of of the average value of a draft pick at a given spot. It's hard to do that without boiling it down to a number, um, just because you know it's hard to average across these different I mean you just you wouldn't even get a result right like you know if you're trying to break down to these different categories and then you still have to somehow um, figure out how to weight them in some way and come up with a number to say you know this pick is um, better or worse than this pick in some way yeah I mean in other words Um, decision making is really tricky if you have like a hundred numbers in front of you right yeah Uh, but I guess yeah I guess what I'm saying is when um, even that I think you can start to there are times where you do want to have multiple numbers um, with decision making, but I'm just saying, even just kind of like a study where just simply you're trying to um, capture the value of something. You're trying to, um, I mean, a simple way to think about it is like if you're setting up a regression, um, you know, you're trying getting to, fancy now. <laughs> <laughs> I try to avoid that. My mom, my mom um, complains about this. <laughs> well, no, I mean, you know, you need to have uh, something you're predicting. Right. Um, so, uh, but I mean, besides very specific cases, um, in my mind, I think that we're often done more of a disservice in our conversation um, when we boil down. And I, like you said, decision making is difficult uh, when you have lots of numbers and in our heads, we're essentially boiling down regardless. Right. So might as well do that with a number. I think the worry again is exactly what you just referenced in terms of you start to rely on the number and you start to forget that it is this kind of, you know, it's a boiled down version of what you'd be doing otherwise. Um, The way I like to use uh, stats more is the opposite way is kind of, you know, that cascade of whys that I was talking about earlier, um, which is to help us uh, break apart what's actually going on and to answer much more granular questions. Uh, So that's one mistake you know, I often see at least what I view as a mistake um, in public analysis. Oftentimes, people trying to break into the industry, uh, a lot of their analysis is they try to, you know, answer some big question. Um, you know, whether it's ranking players or like what's the best makeup of a championship team or things like that. What kind? And, what kind of Yahoo would spend time doing that? <laughs> no. <laughs> It's it's a fun exercise. I think it's very difficult to do statistically. Um, it is. And, it is. It is. That's yeah. true. Keep going. Keep going. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> As you are well aware. Um, no, I, I mean, I think there's also, there's different goals, right? There's, there's entertainment. There's, um, you know, if you're trying to evaluate a player within a team, um, you know, you don't necessarily want a list of the best players in the NBA from top to bottom. Um, because like we just talked about, context matters a lot in terms of their performance. And what you need to look at as a person, you know, as, as a um, you know, front office executive trying to evaluate uh, whether you should acquire that player and for how much is um, what do we project? How would we project them to perform with us? Right. What's the, you know, what is, what is our risk tolerance? What is the, spread of potential outcomes for them that kind of stuff which isn't easily boiled down to a ranking so um no, yeah. keep, keep going sorry um no so i so that's where you know 
that's what my perspective is informed by is trying to answer those questions. And what I, then I try to do is you try to break apart their performance. You try to measure their performance and see what matters and break apart their performance into the things that are more, um, you know, contextually based and things that are more stable across context. Um, and, you know, so I, I think maybe a good example is what we we're just talking about with uh, on off court stats, that is kind of a boiled down number, but uh, you know, as, as I'm sure, you know, from you know looking on cleaning the glass i like to really break that out to a degree that you know i haven't seen in a lot of other places where you know on cleaning the glass you can look at the difference of how a team performs in terms of their transition defense um you know off of uh rebounds when a player's on or off the court and what's funny is you might think that's so granular like the samples must be small or how can you learn that much about it but you see guys like ennis Cantor, who consistently over his entire career when he's on the court, his team gives up a lot more transition off of rebounds than when he's off the court. Um, you know, maybe that's not the biggest surprise if you've watched him and, you know, he's always going off of, uh, after offensive rebounds and things like that. But you can get pretty granular with these things and you can dig down deeper. And for me, that's much more valuable. Um, you know, let's say you're sitting and you're in a front office or you're a coach and you're trying to figure out what's going to be the impact of acquiring Ennis Cantor. Um, what are the things we need to work on with him? Um, what are the things we need to, to really think about strategically? That's one of those things that would be a pretty useful data point is to say, you know, over his entire career, every single team that he's been on, his team has given up, you know, multiple set percentage points higher um, of possessions that start with transition um, when he's on the court than when he's off. So I'll, I'll say this. I would love to see, and I've alluded to this in the past, I would love to see one number metrics i maybe they don't qualify as one number metrics anymore but i would love to see them be more contextual i would love to have a sort of a decoupling of the idea that a player on average is good or on average has certain tendencies or value versus when you put him in situations where he's going to be in system a or you know playing alongside player x or some template of player x we have a better idea of your value. You know, Draymond Green is a fantastic passer. He's not a self-generator. He doesn't pressure the defense with his scoring. So if you strip shooters and off-ball players and movement and you take out those finishers from around him, he has a different kind of offensive value on a team of like G League players versus really skilled shooters. That's one thing I would love to see uh, sort of move in that direction in that department i'll also sort of in general defend i think my pushback on people like yourself and there are plenty of other guys i know who have that take on all-in-ones i actually think the idea of all-in-ones forcing you to kind of go under the hood and change levels is where i find a lot of value in them so you know think of something like adjusted plus minus coming into the public purview and the pushback against players who weren't really skilled offensive players. Oh, how can how can Chuck Hayes be good? He can't do anything. Well, maybe we should actually look under the hood and and change levels here because this sort of this top-down approach, this one number summary is capturing something. Now they may miss, you know, they're not always great. Um, depends on circumstance and what the actual stat is. But that to me is where I think I find a lot of value in them is that 
not only can they summarize something so you can have a conversation sometimes, but they force you to then change levels. And I think it's looking at different levels and interacting of different levels of analysis that can be super, super valuable for all of us, not just for fans and entertainment um, purposes, but also, I think, within the league and decision making. Tell me where I'm wrong. No, I, I don't know <laughs> that you're wrong. I, I, what I wonder is, um, is that is that a property of one number metrics or is that a property of plus minus metrics? So, um, I mean, I think that it's a great point in terms of essentially plus minus is saying we're going to try to capture everything that happens while you're on the court and its impact on the scoreboard. And then from there, you know, we need to figure out if there are people who, um, you know, the scoreboard just reflects something that we don't expect. We need to dig a little deeper and figure out, okay, is it teammates? Is it opponents? Or is it something that they're doing? Um, you know, that maybe we didn't realize was so valuable. That to me feels like that's an interesting insight that's generated um, because we're just capturing, you know, the change on the scoreboard. But a one number metric, uh, I think, is a larger category, right, which includes, I mean, lots of efforts to essentially boil a player's production down into one number and capture everything that they do on the court, um, which by necessity is going to include context. Um, you know, things that aren't stable and is going to introduce a lot of error because, I mean, everything we're just talking about, all the measurement error that exists in the data in the first place. Okay, so I think that's a great point. And as you're talking through it, I think I used to view it that way, that it's a property of uh, basically the scoreboard only adjusted plus minus kind of family. But I think what's happened to me in the last couple of years, I ended up creating my own box plus minus model out of looking at different levels and just at a certain point coming back to like wanting a high level thing that I could then talk about the the sort of the lowest level of granularity, which may be um, something very specific to passing to a middle level, which now for me is like playmaking, just general playmaking. Let's talk about playmaking and then a top level. And so that box plus minus model is not a pure plus minus model. It's not just the scoreboard. It's still a one number model where I can start with the one number, number, look at offense, and then, you know, dive down under the hood and maybe dive down under the hood further. That's what I'm speaking to where I think I totally used to see it the way you just uh, referenced it, but I see more value now in general in being able to exchange levels on these things. So I I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, I guess maybe the way that I would put it is that or maybe the place where we disagree, um, is that uh, I think ultimately we're all doing that. Um, we're all finding some way to take lots of, I mean, when you have to make a decision, you need, like we just said, you need to boil it down to a yes or a no. Um, and, uh, you know, so we're all implicitly maybe uh, boiling things down. And I think maybe what you're talking about is to say, well, if you make it explicit, you at least have to confront all of those decisions. Yes. And yes. you have to like, yeah, you have to really think it out. Yep. And um, I guess I fall a little bit more on the side of, uh, I mean, just what we were talking about earlier is when you put it in the form of a number and a ranking, people forget that it's really uncertain <laughs> and they forget that it's, you know, it, it's, uh, you have all these assumptions baked in. Um, so I think that it makes a lot of sense if you can, um, keep that in mind always that, and especially if it's your metric that you designed, then it will be easier for you to know everything that goes into it. And if it's a metric that 
is then presented to lots of other people and is then used by other people in decision-making scenarios, that's where I get a a little bit skittish just because, um, you know, I don't necessarily, I think it's, it's much more, it's much easier to be abused or misused um, if it's, you know, in that situation. And that feels more dangerous to me than being able to have a more nuanced conversation about all the underlying stuff. I love that we disagree on this. I hope Twitter's not too mad that the Bens are fighting. Uh, <laughs> we, got, we got that tweet at some point last year. Uh, I can't remember what it was about, but you had a point and uh, I wasn't, I wasn't push back very hard. I just had a slightly, a slightly orthogonal point and a bunch of people were, no, the Bens are fighting. Um, but I do really appreciate that perspective you just shared. I, I appreciate the counter. Um, well, I mean, I think it's the disagreement is, I mean, if we just were here just talking about how much we agreed on everything, I think that would probably be not very interesting. That's true. Um, I mean, I think the disagreement is where people learn, both of us and anyone else listening. Right, right. And I'll, and I'll say, I think you're not wrong in what you're saying, right? It's really it's really just about, you know, the trade-offs with these things. It's great power comes great responsibility if you're if you're on the wrong side. Because I think we agree that there's a level of danger and there's a level of value. And the question is, you know, from what lens do you look at that through to say like, oh, my overall takeaway is that it actually is a little bit more harmful or my overall takeaway is that it's a little more valuable. Um, I, I wanted to get on one more topic before I let you get out of here. Do you have time? Yeah, sure. Okay. Foul trouble. And, I mean, speaking of things that have been ingrained in, <laughs> in our sort of uh, collective decision making for a long time. Foul trouble and taking star players or I guess any player out of the game early when they have fouls. I have some particularly strong opinions about this. I kind of view it as where like football was with fourth down and punting and field goals 20 years ago. And I still think there is a gap in taking players out way too early. It used to be the two foul in the first quarter rule. That's now been relaxed I think in the last few years I'm assuming because there's more analytically driven thinking in front offices and integrated with coaching staffs but it's still an issue it came up the other night where Jokic was yanked with I can't remember if it was three or four I think he had three fouls in the first half that's what it was he had three fouls in the first half after four minutes and he ended up finishing the game with 24 minutes and four fouls and I've just never been a proponent of taking a guy out of a game because you're worried he's going to foul out and therefore you couldn't put him in the game. There's some nuance there that we can get into, but I'm wondering out of the gate uh, if you have thoughts on that, if that's something that you encountered when you were in the league. Um, Tell me about that. I I think that we mostly agree on that. Um, I See, the Bens agree, Twitter. It's it's okay. yeah, so I think we mostly agree on that, on, on the broad points. Um, that has also always been something that has frustrated me. I do think um, it's uh, maybe a little bit more, I'd add maybe a little more nuance to it. Um, definitely, definitely. Yeah, yeah but I, so we, you know, I studied this when I was with teams, and uh, the one thing that I took away from it that, um, you know, always stood out in my mind is that I don't think enough coaches really think carefully about the fact that it's essentially a trade-off you're essentially trading minutes total minutes that the player will play for the chance that they'll be available at the end of the game that's what the decision boils down to almost completely 
Um, I mean, unless you assume that a player will foul at a higher rate when playing in foul trouble, if you just assume kind of a constant rate of, of potential fouls, um, then you take them out, and that by necessity is going to limit uh, the amount of time that they can be on the court, but you have more control over whether they're playing in a high-leverage situation. Um, but I think you also, when you start to think about it that way, you start to realize, well, not every game is close, right? Yeah, um, that, that's my thing. Might, my game might become close because our star player wasn't in the game. Um, and so as you break it down that way, you know, to me, it just seems logically that you would want to, um, in my mind, err kind of more on the side of having your, your best players play more than saving them for an outcome, which, uh, might not matter, um, you know, or might not, you know, really impact the, the final score. So, um, that's, uh, one side of it. The other side of it is a little bit uh, you know, like what you alluded to, that you don't actually, the, the earlier in the game you apply a rule like that, the less knowledge you have about how the rest of the game is going to play out uh, by necessity. So, um, you know, if a player picks up his second foul with 10 minutes left in the first quarter, it's really early in the game. Um, you know, they're in foul trouble. I think we would agree on that, but we don't know whether that was just one fluke foul that throws everything off. Um, whereas if, they pick up their fifth foul with, uh, you know, five minutes left in the third quarter, <laughs> then you can say, okay, we have a much better sense of the trade-off that's going on here. Um, we know that, you know, one more foul and they're out of the game, um, as opposed to in the scenario where the second foul is picked up at the beginning of the game, you don't even know if they'll end up getting close to fouling out. So, you know, I, that's why I say I mostly agree with you that um, I feel like coaches are fouling out their own players. Um, right. That's a great way know. to put it. So, um, you know, that has always frustrated me. I do think that players do play differently with the perception of foul trouble. Um, I think coaches approach things differently. Um, you know, opposing coaches will approach things differently. Um, you know, so if you think about someone like Jokic, I don't think he, you know, he's, he's someone who could probably play smart and avoid fouls. But the other team, knowing that he's going to be particularly careful around avoiding contact, they might go at him and, he, you know, he's going to be playing worse defense because of that. So it becomes a little more complex in, um, in that situation. I think that as with any of these things, the answer isn't necessarily kind of a black and white, you know, let's do this, let's do that, as opposed to if that is a strategy that you want to pursue, it might be a better strategy, but you also have to coach it, coach it and practice it in the same way that when we talk about shot selection with, you know, mid-range shots versus threes, um, you know, I don't think it's smart to just say like, we're not taking mid range shots. You have to create a system and you have to practice and you have to get players comfortable with how do you consistently create uh, good looks at the rim or behind the three point line. Um, I think that's kind of the, the missing factor there. I think there's maybe ways to be creative with, let's say someone picks up let you know, that second foul with 10 minutes left in the first quarter. Maybe you just, um, rearrange the road, the, your, your minutes rotation, where now you take them out, but you don't actually sacrifice any minutes. So you kind of uh, pull a fast one in the sense that like, you know, so you take them out for two minutes and then you put them back in and you, instead of giving them a two minute break at the end of the quarter, um, now you're right back where you are. And maybe the other team kind of forgets or doesn't think about them as in foul trouble and attacks them as much. Um, you, so maybe there's some kind of creative ways around that, but I also think it needs to be taught. You, you need to have um, practices where you're simulating foul trouble 
and uh, you're teaching players how to effectively defend without picking up fouls so that you don't end up in the situation like we are just talking about where, you know, the, the big man's in foul trouble. And so he just kind of plays Ole defense at the rim because he's afraid of picking up that next foul. Um, so that, that's kind of the nuance that I'd add to it. But I think kind of in broad strokes, I, I agree with you a lot. Well, I, I think the perception, the idea of the perce- perception of foul trouble is what's really interesting for me because the the high level parameters I look at are how f- how foul prone is the player slash how well can he play without fouling um, and Jokic may be a- an example of someone who can do that pretty well. I think the next big thing for me, which you alluded to, is the rotations. One of the thing that always things that always drove me nuts about this is, and you saw it the other night in Denver, you rest this guy. But then to feel like you're going to make up for minutes, you play him like almost the entire second half once you feel like he's sort of, quote unquote, cleared a foul trouble bar. So you're then putting him in a position where he plays a much longer stint versus, uh, or in addition to, I should say, forcing other guys to play really long stints in the first half that they're not used to. So that rotation thing has always been a big thing to me. And then that last idea that you touched on with like, What is perceived foul trouble? I think one thing that's been really cool to see in the last few years as some teams become a little more relaxed on this is you can still play. It's all in your mind. You're not you don't need to completely change your strategy with two fouls in the first quarter. You can still play. And if you happen to get a third foul and, you know, the coach thinks that within the rotations and within your foul trouble, uh, you know, your fouling tendencies and everything else that goes in it, you should stay in the game. You can do that, but I don't. Uh, your 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 idea of practicing with foul trouble, I think, is a perfectly valid idea. All I'm saying is, this doesn't need to apply. At you know, three minutes left in the first quarter, you've got two fouls. That's it. You can't come back in until I don't know. Go to the go to the two point conversion chart. The stick the six minute mark of the second quarter or whatever it is. Yeah, I mean, I think that these rules of thumb exist um, for a legitimate reason which is that uh it's there's a lot of stuff to keep track of on the sideline as a coach um and you know you're in the thick of things and it's much easier to have a hard and fast rule that you can just follow um than to kind of think through all of those complexities in the moment um but i think you know in this day and age where we can put in a lot more preparation ahead of time it makes sense for coaches to kind of think through that think if there are um you know i think it's it's funny you you know you're saying a two-point conversion chart kind of in a negative way but i you know if you had something that was like that that was a little bit more dynamic for um you know who the player was in the situation um you know you could have something that's just again makes it easy on you cognitively as a coach where it's just something that says like, you know, this is the, you know, here's a little chart that says this is, this is where we are. And this is something that we should consider foul trouble or not, um, you know, based on a more sophisticated understanding of, of everything that, yeah. that you've just talked about. Yeah, no, I'd love that. I, I was being a little bit pejorative in thinking of back in, you know, 20 years ago when there were just these rules of thumb in football about we can never go for it on fourth and two. We can never go for it in our own territory. There's this very small gap between like the edge of field goal range and punting where it's socially acceptable for us to go for it and everything else is just anathema to this idea of like actually being a good coach and I feel like we're, we're getting away from it and hopefully you know it'll continue to move in in 
uh, a better direction or a more nuanced direction. But I feel like, especially when you watch a college game, uh, and some of those kids, you know, they can't control fouling as well. But it's just just been a stigma for so long about early in the game. If you have two fouls, if you have three fouls, you have to go to the bench. And I've yeah. So yeah, yeah. I mean, I think one of the other things that's really interesting is. Um, and, and I'm sure your public crusade against it might help this, but it's just that whatever the uh, kind of accepted norm is, I think has a big impact on that um, because coaches are going to be risk averse in that way and not even with respect to winning the game, but with respect to uh, avoiding criticism. And so because, I mean, I think you see often this is changing slightly in the NBA, but I think it's still um you know, tilts the wrong direction. But if there's a situation where it's a close game and a player, a star is not available because they fouled out, the coach gets criticized for mismanaging the player's minutes and mismanaging the foul trouble. Um, the reverse is not true, maybe partly because of the things we were talking about earlier, like it's a counterfactual that you can't see, but you don't often, you don't get criticized as often for uh, taking a star out, um, you know, and dealing with foul trouble that might not exist um and then you know losing the game by 10 maybe because of that um and and that's what happened historically by the way what that that exact point that's how that's kind of how the crusade and now i'm now i'm inspired by you to make it a crusade but for me me, i would look through these old players and their old box scores and studying history and looking at trends and there would be times when guys played 26 minutes in a non-blowout game and they had three fouls and I would actually have to do digger deeping d- d- deeper. Do dig, digger digger. Let me try that one again. Uh, I would have to do deeper digging to find out that you know this was just a situation where they were benched with foul trouble in the first half, and then only accumulated 24, 28, 30 minutes back when guys were playing thirty-eight to forty-five minutes a night regularly as star players. And so you start to look through all of the times where this happened, and you're saying, why? Why are they? Why are they taking this star player out of the game and sitting him for 15 or 20 extra minutes? But it was never a question. No one ever noticed it. Yeah. So my my thought is in, maybe disqualification is too extreme of a, a punishment for what's going on, right? So of having six fouls in a game. And you could just come up with a slightly less extreme punishment. So the player can stay in the game, but any foul that they get is you know, a technical in addition to the other um, the other issues. So that's actually what happens when a player has too few players um, remaining in the game. So if you have only five players who are eligible to come into the game and one of the players fouls out, um, they don't get disqualified and you're forced to play with four players. Instead, what happens is it's technical and any foul beyond that is a technical. Um you know, so when I when I published that, I got pushed back. People saying that's not stiff enough of a penalty. You'd have many more fouls. It would become a bloodbath. Um, I'm not sure whether that's right or not, um, but you know, it's worth considering whether we're in the right spot and the trade-off in terms of the penalty. Um, you know, maybe to your point, coaches can just make better decisions, or maybe it's just the rules might be able to be tweaked where you're not having a situation where number one stars aren't playing as much as. Uh, they should be, which is not obviously what fans want to see. And number two, you're also putting both coaches and referees in a very difficult position where now, I mean, referees can decide a game essentially by 
get it, giving one extra foul to a player to a star early in the game. Um, and I think both of those are things that we would want to, just from a fan's perspective and from the league's perspective, they would want to try to avoid. Yeah, I think that'd be pretty fun. I'm, I'm, I'm down for kind of wrinkles in the rules and, and things like that. Um, speaking of fun, this conversation has been very enjoyable. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It lived up to my expectations of a great hoops conversation. So. Okay, awesome. We'll yeah. we'll see. Hopefully, hopefully people like it. I I mean, it's just been awesome to to pick your brain and uh, talk about some of these things in detail. So yeah, I really appreciate it. Where um, where can people find you besides cleaning the glass? Say, you know, what else is going on? What's new? Tell everyone uh, what they need to know to keep up with your work. Yeah, and most of it you can find at cleaningtheglass.com. Um, you know, there's a way to subscribe to um, email updates for the articles that I write. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Ben C. Falk, F-A-L-K. Um, and, you know, otherwise, there's not much else to talk about. It's just watching basketball, talking basketball. <laughs> Be sure to check out all of Ben's wonderful work on cleaningtheglass.com. Also, huge thanks to The Athletic for sponsoring this episode. Once again, if you go to theathletic.com slash thinkingbasketballpod, you can get 50% off the subscription fee and one month of a free trial. Check it out if you haven't. They have all kinds of great stuff over there. Theathletic.com slash thinkingbasketballpod. Uh, if you are a Patreon, be sure to tune into the post show. Ben and I continue our discussion, really getting into parody and sort of what drives interest from, you know, what's better. Is it better to have a dynasty or parody? We compare basketball a little to tennis. Just an interesting post show conversation about narratives and sort of what drives interest. Uh, a little bit from a behavioral standpoint, stuff like that. So that's over on patreon.com slash thinking basketball. You can head on over there, check it out, support the show, um, support support the podcast when you do that. That post show will be available immediately when this goes up. So when you're a Patreon and you're done, head on over there, listen to that conversation. One final housekeeping bit for patrons, if you are in the deluxe tier, this weekend is our first live Q&A in the Patreon Discord community. That's for deluxe tier members. So really looking forward to that. That is on Sunday, and there are announcements inside the Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball about that. All right, that's all I got. Hope you enjoyed this episode, and I will talk to you next week in the next episode. And as always, hope you're having a great day.